You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to answer some of your questions for us. But first, it's time for another round of Buried Treasures. Absolutely, Greg. And we're listening all the time. Sometimes it's only the 30-second test. Sometimes it's something that really gets under our skin. My first buried treasure, in, in a good way, under our skin in a good way, my first buried treasure is exactly that. It is from a group called Killer Workout. Uh, this is a group that has been going for some time in Seattle, a quintet that is revisiting that sort of period where punk was merging with disco to become new wave. Uh, I think a lot of people would think of Blondie and Heart of Glass. I think the uh, the group that they evoke in the best, most positive way uh, is Romeo Void, right? Uh, I, I love that period where dance music and rock, punk energy, and dance grooviness are merging. Uh, this group had, uh, led by, by Adrian Clark, who's the keyboardist and vocalist, had a great album out. I didn't discover it until I got an email about their new single. Great album came out. Out, Dance Until You Die in 2019. They had a new single come out mid-April of this year. The song is called Too Late. And, uh, you know, I, you are the big dance guy. I knew instantly you were going to like this. Uh, uh, did, 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 are you with me? Is this a great song? I am. I am with you. You're hitting a sweet spot for me, too, as a, as a I knew fan. All right. Killer Workout, Too Late on Sound Opinions.
New single from the Seattle Quintet, Killer Workout. Too late is the song. Man, I want a whole new album. <laughs> that sounds really good, Jim. Speaking of dance vibes, my first buried treasure uh, has one as well. It's a group called Salt, S-A-U-L-T. Apparently, they're based out of London. Apparently, they're a trio. The reason why I'm saying apparently is because there's not a lot of uh, information about this group. Apparently, purposefully so. Their first record came out last year, titled Five. They followed it up with another one called Seven. What, what the reason for that is, I'm not quite clear, but what I what do know... What happened to know, six? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What happened to one, two, three, four, for that matter? Oh, yeah, yeah. But what I do love is, uh, is, is the music. Um, there's elements of neo-soul in this. There's some sparse funk, uh, reminiscent a little bit of ESG. Uh, there's also some kraut rock floating around in there, some German art rock uh, that they incorporate into many of their songs. This is sort of like these cool niche genres of the past all coming together with this contemporary edge. Here's an example of what's going on with Salt, a track called Don't Waste My Time on Sound Opinions. Waste My Time from Salt on Sound Opinions, one of my buried treasures. Two albums worth of material out there, Jim, that is well worth uh, digging into. 
I was loving that mix, Greg, of those intricate polyrhythms and those hyper-energetic uh, female vocals. Really great stuff. We, we need to know more. It is frustrating with Buried Treasures mm-hmm. when you can't find anything about a group on the net. Greg, I'm going to an artist that does have a fair amount of information out there. They have built a tremendous career uh, out of making a really powerful singer-songwriter music uh, that builds and builds and builds uh, and, and advocating for a space for queer people and people who are gender non-binary. Uh, I'm talking about Ellen Siberian Tiger, a person named Ellen Tiberio Schultz, I think the name uh, of the group is a uh, spin off of that, performs often as part of a Philadelphia trio, but the band varies in size and Ellen is always at the center of it. I think there's a lot of uh, what I love most about Tori Amos or Fiona Apple that dramatic singer-songwriter storytelling and the uh, sometimes minimal musical backings with a strong voice that can then suddenly erupt into these big, like Peter Gabriel orchestral kind of uh, very dramatic moments. Ellen Siberian Tiger has a new album coming out uh, in July, if schedules hold, called Cinderblock Cindy, but there is a single out in advance of that now, If a Tree Falls in the Forest. And I really want you to pay attention to uh, uh, Midway Through, where the kind of quiet minimalism uh, that has, has prevailed for the first minute and a half begins to open up. And it's just, it's a phenomenally uh, dramatic moment. If a tree fell in the forest and I never saw it, how can I miss it so? Felt just like an earthquake, not sure if it made a sound, but I felt the timber from below.
Ellen Siberian Tiger. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make any noise, Mr. Cott? <laughs> I like that buzzy guitar sound in there for sure. That's uh, great stuff. The uh, next artist I want to highlight goes by the name of Peter Cottontail. His actual name is Peter Wilkins. People in Chicago know him as the longtime secret weapon in a myriad of Chicago music projects for the last decade. He's uh, in this band, The Social Experiment, that's basically the backing band for Chance the Rapper. He's done production work not only for Chance, but for artists like SZA, Vic Mensa, Jamila Woods. Uh, brilliant keyboardist, arranger, producer, now finally stepping out on his own with an album called Catch. Again, this is a community effort, like many of these Chicago projects in recent years. Uh, bringing in a uh, a community of artists uh, of of similar feel uh, from different kinds of genres gospel soul funk r and b you name it they're they're going to be found on these records on this record, for example, he not only has chance and Jamila Woods working with him but jeremiah p j morton John Baptiste Kirk Franklin, uh, a veritable all star crew of artists, but it doesn't sound haphazard or disjointed in any way. They are all joined by Cottontail's skills as a producer, arranger, and also singer, Peter Cottontail, stepping out as a vocalist as well and doing a pretty good job of it, I think. The track I'm going to play is called High Five. It's from a, a brilliant new record called Catch by Peter Cottontail on Sound Opinions.
Peter Cottontail with High Five. Greg, it's interesting you said Kirk Franklin. I definitely am hearing that tradition of gospel music, Chicago gospel in particular. Uh, And I love the way that the vocals are front and center over uh, that that minimalist, repetitive beat and that simple synth hook. Uh, That track's really all about the vocals. If you've got a pick for an album we need to hear, another buried treasure, call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on the Facebooks or Twitters. After a break, Greg and I will dig up some more buried treasures. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're going through some of our favorite recent records that haven't gotten as much attention as they should. Jim, you're up next. Greg, in the many, many years, uh, almost three decades worth, that I went to South by Southwest, I had heard the name A Giant Dog many times. Never caught them in their hometown of Austin. Uh, They were on Sound Opinions once. While A Giant Dog was ongoing, I think they're still ongoing, Sabrina Ellis set out with a co-member of that band, Andrew Cashin, as a side project named Sweet Spirit to focus on their uh, songwriting outside of the group. And what's really interesting about Sweet Spirit, instantly got some some big-name fans. Britt Daniel collaborated with them on a couple of songs. Steve Berlin of Los Lobos produced their sophomore album, Saint Mojo. They have this new record, Trinidad, on Merge. And I think it is a really, really well-realized, you know, pay attention to this record mm-hmm. kind of record. There are elements of shoegaze and, dare I say, progressive rock, but in that wonderful sort of Austin bargain basement, no fuss approach, which is, say, kind of punk, kind of glam rock. And the resulting merger gives us a sort of dance music, dance pop that has elements of T-Rex and Prince and that dance artist Robin. It is hard to pin down. I'm throwing all these influences at you because it's kind of all over the map, but it makes perfect sense when you hear a sweet spirit letting loose. This single is out now. It is called Behold by Sweet Spirit on Sound Opinions.
That is Behold from Sweet Spirit. Good call, Jim. Uh, Sabrina Ellis can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. That's uh, another great band that she's in besides a giant dog. My next pick will be a a couple similarly to what Sweet Spirit is with uh, Sabrina Ellis and Andrew Cashin. This is a, again, another mystery band. Jim, we're just full of mysteries today. This band is a duo, apparently, a husband and wife from Chicago who uh, have played in other bands in the uh, Chicago indie scene. And they have been self-releasing songs in, since early 2019. They go by the name of White Rabbit Object. They, uh, they modify that. It's W-H-T period, R-B-B-T period, O-B-J. Pronounced White Rabbit Object. Okay, got all that? I was wondering how you were going to say Don't know that. the names yeah. of the band members. <laughs> kind of got a screwy name for the band. But again, you know, and we may be getting played here, Jim, for all I know. But what I do know is this, that this song swings like a wrecking ball. It's called Jolene's Reply. We know that name Jolene, right, from Dolly Parton's 1974 classic. Jolene, Jolene, I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. And uh, in introducing the song on the net a few weeks ago, they, uh, they posed a question. Ever wonder what Jolene told Dolly? after she begged her not to take her man. Here is the response. <laughs> so this is, uh, the response essentially comes down to, I'm not sorry that I took your man. You know, a defiant response, to say the least. And as you might expect, uh, you know, if you're going to respond like that to Dolly Parton, you're going you're gonna to make it stripped down, you're going to make it bluesy, heavily distorted, roadhouse raunch. And that's what this song delivers. Jolene's reply from White Rabbit Object on Sound Opinions.
rabbit object, Jolene's reply, whatever this is, Greg, you know, this, this <laughs> yeah. notion of everybody sharing too much all the time on the That's internet. Right. I like when, when artists keep us wondering. And I got to say, that is the dirtiest groove I've heard in a long time. And that is saying a lot, given mm-hmm. the roadhouse dirt we have been hearing this year. Some <laughs> great stuff. Lucinda Williams, Jason Isbell, right. right? The way that track erupts in guitar noise at the end. Good mm-hmm. stuff. I always feel compelled to uh, point out that uh, while we cover Chicago music fairly often on this show, it is not because we are homers, you know, that we think this is the center of the universe. There is a lot of great music made here, and especially when I'm digging for buried treasures, I literally know nothing about the group when I begin to listen, and then I find out they're from Chicago, and then I have to, like, make quintuple sure that I really like this band because I don't want to be accused of of giving undue light to a group from uh, our hometown. Not only are they from our hometown, as I discovered, they share a a room not far from me in the rehearsal space where my band (laughs) rehearses. Talk about a small world. But honestly, it was this single, Bad Form, which is a taster from a forthcoming album called Just Look at the Sky that made me pay attention to Ganser. Earlier, we were talking about ESP and that uh, 1979-1980 period in New York City where you are seeing funk and disco and punk rock uh, merge into something new. You know, post-punk is not really a phrase that even does it justice. It was an angular sort of dance music that was about energy and noise and grooviness, but not in any way we'd heard before. And that is what this quartet, led by keyboardist vocalist Nadia Garofalo and bassist vocalist Alicia Gaines, two women up front sharing vocal duties, that is what they do really, really well, occasionally throwing in, as you'd hear in that period in New York, uh, trumpet or, or trombone and different elements, you know, like almost sampling, but live with live instrumentation this is really explosive stuff and i'm eager when the world resumes to see ganser on stage and to hear that full album bad form by ganser on sound opinions
That is Ganser with Bad Form. Jim, I uh, can't uh, agree with you more uh, about this band. I love that sound, and, uh, you know, it's timeless in its own way. I, I've been looking forward to, to more from this band. They've got, you said, a record coming out in the, in the summer, Yeah, right? July. Sounds good. My final buried treasure is a band by the name of Bonnie Light Horseman. That is a, a co-ed trio. The supergroup moniker gets thrown around all the time. It's been thrown around for this band. Uh, you know, the relatively modest credentials. Nothing against the individuals in this band. They're all very fine singers and musicians, but they're probably not household names either. One of the members, uh, Eric D. Johnson, is from the Fruit Bats. Aeneas Mitchell, uh, one of the vocalists, is a, a, a very accomplished singer-songwriter, and, and Josh Kaufman, all very fine individuals who decided to take on this project together based around traditional blues and folk songs. What they are trying to do is, rather than be overly reverent about the material, they wanted to play with it, create sort of a living history of where they're coming from. Uh, the track I'm going to play is originally recorded in 1939 by an artist named Lila Mae Stevens. Peggy Seeger later recorded it, you know, in, in a subsequent incarnation. And then there was a version by one Tia Blake that incorporated a bit of the spiritual Children Go Where I Send Thee into this song, Jane Jane, that you're going to hear in a second here. So what that has done, that Bonnie Light Horsemen have sort of amplified that juxtaposition of this spiritual with this old-timey folk song. So basically what they're doing is taking this light moment, this light-hearted moment, Children Go Where I Send Thee. It's kind of a, an old-fashioned counting song. And that refrain gains weight when it's juxtaposed with the verse sung by Eric D. Johnson, where it's very downcast. So you get this mix of moods in the song. And I think at the essence of that is bittersweet. When we think about the best of traditional music, what is it about it that resonates? It's that bittersweet mood. It's that bittersweet feeling that you're sort of in between poles as opposed to being one way or the other. And I think they pull it off brilliantly on this song. I love the, I love the harmonies and I love the uh, atmosphere that they create. Here is Jane Jane from Bonnie Light Horseman on Sound Opinions. Jane Jane my Lord and Lord, I'm gonna buy three pretty little birds, one for to whistle, one for to sing, one for to do most any little thing. Children, go where I send thee. How shall I send thee? Hey, hey, my Lord.
Light Horseman. So we are not uh, comparing notes on buried treasures when we dig them up. We just send each other lists so that we can react to the song. This is the only pick this week, Greg, that didn't do a darn thing for me. <laughs> it was just like boring me to hell. And they're like, now I understand. I've never been a Fruit Bats fan. Uh, I didn't even hear that connection, but it was just really sleepy. But that's, you know, three that I loved and uh, one out of four that I didn't. Uh, but the last time we did a Buried Treasures show, it's always the one snarky comment on social media that sticks with you. The writer was convinced on Twitter that everything we'd given them except the reggae song I played by that artist, Summer, was all crap. They hated everything. <laughs> what the hell are they doing? You know, well, hey, everybody's a critic. That is the sound opinions ethos. We just start the conversation. We don't mean to be the last word. Yes, indeed. And uh, that plays nicely with what I'm going to say next, which is to ask our listeners, if you've got an album that is flying under the radar that everyone should hear, let us know about it. Give us a call at 888-859-1800 or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, we're going to answer some of your questions for us. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, socially distant, but as close as ever, Greg, from Greg Cott. And this week, we are answering questions that listeners sent in to us. Especially in times like these, we find it to be a great way to connect to all of you. So let's hear from our first caller. Hi, this is Scott Gilman from Austin, Texas. I'm curious about your process for reviewing new albums. How many times do you listen to an album before you're comfortable giving a review on it? How many listens before you start taking notes? Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Well, Scott, I uh, don't think it matters so much how many times I listen to an album. It's more about how I listen to it. I find that I get more information every time I listen if I sort of vary the context in which I'm listening. Sometimes I'll be driving and listening to a record. Uh, sometimes I'll be washing dishes with it with the record on in the background. Sometimes I'm, um, I've got headphones on it, I'm totally focused on it. Sometimes I'll play it through the big speakers in my, in my office. And, uh, you know, heck, you might even find me dancing around to it. I, <laughs> I want to get a different sense of the record by sort of playing those little games with myself. And one thing I've found is that the music, it, it's the music that's important. It, it, there's a texture, there's an emotion to it. It creates an ambiance. And I don't want to start taking too many notes too soon. I want to let this record sort of pull me into its world, it, you know, because it's sort of in a mood-altering, environment-changing kind of thing, a great record. And sometimes a thing, uh, you know, an aspect of the record, a song or a riff or a little texture can jump out at you, and that tells you something. You might not notice it in certain contexts, but in other ones you might. Like, you know, suddenly something jumps out at you while you're washing the dishes. That's an important piece of information. And then at a certain point, I'll start writing down notes. I'll start taking down notes. But I, I try to focus on the music itself more, as much or more than the lyrics. 
Greg, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, the goal is to listen and to live with a record before sitting down and starting to take notes. Uh, we have a luxury now uh, with Sound Opinions in that we get music in advance. We can live with it for a while. It was getting tough at the end of our stints at the Daily Newspaper where you'd get a really dense, complicated record, uh, you know, Bjork or, or Radiohead, and, uh, you know, drops at noon online and people start putting reviews up at 2 p.m. Uh, that is not not a way to review hmm. music. You know, that having been said, I love to listen uh, as many times as possible in many different uh, circumstances. But, you know, sometimes you've got the record on the first listen. You know, Jason Isbell and Lucinda Williams, two recent examples. I knew those were masterpieces from listen number one. And I knew The Strokes was a really big disappointment from listen number one. Uh, you know, I kept listening for a week or more a dozen times. You know, something like Fetch the Bolt Cutters by, by Fiona mm. Apple. Man, I listened to that two dozen times because there was a lot to take in. We have another listener with another question for us. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Chris from Raleigh, North Carolina. You cover a lot of different genres of music on your show. Have you always liked different styles of music, or was it something you grew into? You know, Chris, um, I, I always have liked uh, different styles of music. You know, from early on, like preteen years, uh, it's almost been uh, a ridiculous dichotomy. I was obsessed with progressive rock. I loved heavy metal, and I loved punk. And, and you wouldn't necessarily find uh, a crowd with those three kinds of people at any of the concerts once I started going to see live music. Uh, but I was there at all of them. Then. You know, uh, becoming a professional music writer, getting to write for magazines early on and getting to uh, eventually be the pop music critic at the Sun-Times, you've got to be interested in everything because, uh, you know, that is the job. You cover the waterfront wherever uh, a band is making uh, news, uh, you know, uh, you have got to cover it, whether it's uh, 85-year-old polka musicians who are playing Elvis covers on the northwest side of Chicago, you know, or some young up-and-coming guy named Kanye who's making a lot of noise in the hip-hop world, you know. I was, and I always found, you know, I was a journalism sociology double major. Uh, even when I didn't love the music, I was fascinated by people. Yeah, Jim, uh, I don't even remember taking into consideration a thing like genre for the first 20 years of my life. You know, it was it was just like it was all music. It was, you know, I, I remember being fascinated by the radio when I was a kid. Top 40 had all these huge range of genres on on Top 40 in the 70s. And it didn't really matter what genre the song was in. It just it was either a good song or a bad song or a song that I liked or I didn't like. And. It was as simple as that. Once I got to college, it was, um, you know, every kid in the dormitory had their own record collection. And I, I just remember being fascinated by each kid had their own specialty area. And we'd, we'd sit around and listen to records. That was a big, uh, big hangout pastime, listening to those records and being introduced to stuff that you never would have listened to otherwise or never would have encountered had not this person brought you that album on that night. And I remember, you know, one kid in particular had a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, knowledge of jazz and introducing me to the Art Ensemble of Chicago and Lenny Tristano and people like that. And there was another guy who was really into modern classical, Steve Reich and Philip Glass and people like that. And this Estonian composer, Arvo Peart, I remember being a big deal for us early on. And then, uh, 
you know, uh, the fact that I was writing reviews, I got sent to shows that I had no idea, in in fact, what they were really all all that much about. You know, go review this concert by Return to Forever. Okay, I'll I'll go. I really don't know much about their music, but I'll figure it out. And it was that kind of learning process where you just sort of get tossed into the deep end, and before you know it, you're you're being exposed to all these different kinds of music. And I like that. I like the fact that there was so much music out there all of it sounded different and to me that was a reason to keep listening to it and being curious about it was the thing that got me energized about music in the first place and that is that has never really uh stopped since you know greg i never understand people who aren't uh genre curious i grew up loving italian food grandma rose right uh it's my favorite cuisine but I would not want to live in a world where I can't also eat Chinese food and soul mm. food and barbecue, the Southern varieties and the, and the Texas varieties. It's all good. We have one more listener with one more question. Hey, Jimmy Greg, this is Andy in Atlanta. just wanted to know, how are your music collections organized at home? Alphabetically, chronologically, in big stacks you've been meaning to file away but haven't? And how often have you bought an album again just to get it in a different format? Thanks, guys. Well, my collection predates uh, the Internet era, Andy, so I'm a believer in alphabetically filing my collection, uh, and, I, and, and for one very good reason. Once I started you know, doing music criticism, we, we were just flooded with physical product. Uh, it was first it was cassettes and albums, and then it was CDs. And one of the biggest frustrations of the job was finding the particular record for the artist that you were writing about that week, or you were doing a preview on a concert, or whatever and you couldn't find the record because it was somewhere in that stack over there in the corner <laughs> with 300 other vinyl albums or cassettes or CDs so i started hiring interns uh, in part to uh you know keep my collection in order so i filed it alphabetically ever since i i had separate categories for jazz and reggae and then compilations and movie soundtracks and then the the rockish stuff soul stuff all went and hip hop all went into uh, into the other big area in my in my uh, basement office. That's essentially the way I've done it. And I did occasionally buy an album multiple times just to hear what it sounded like in a new format. I think CD was the big uh, changing point for a lot of us. We had music that we loved on cassette or vinyl, and then just to hear what did it sound like on CD. This is supposed to be the new big thing. I remember those initial CDs not sounding so great or not adding anything new to the mix. They just were a little more convenient to, uh, you know, move around, portable and convenient. And I was able to bring handfuls of CDs on road trips with me and listen to them on my little, a little disc man, you know. So uh, from a critic standpoint, they were a, were, were a tremendous convenience. You know, I wasn't a big uh, believer that I had to own a beloved album in seven different formats. You know, one if one sounded good, I was more than happy with that. Do you still have separate areas for, like, hip-hop and, and uh, jazz and rock? and? I do, but I, I, I have to say I've winnowed it down considerably. Now that most of this stuff is available on the Internet, there was no reason to keep every record put out by a certain artist. And the reason I did it in the first place was just to you know, make sure that I was accurately spelling names of song titles and, you know, side musicians and things like that. But 
now the internet's made a lot of that redundant, so I've been able to winnow out some of the physical stuff that I've had. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you have a much bigger collection uh, physically uh, than I do, and partly uh, that was because my trajectory uh, as I took different jobs across the country brought me from, you know, Hoboken to Minneapolis to Chicago back to New York to work at Rolling Stone, to Minneapolis, to Chicago. And like an idiot, I unloaded many of the uh, 12-inch vinyl albums because those were the hardest to move. And I, I never kept CDs that, like, you know, I had given, you know, two stars to out of the four-star sometimes scale. <laughs> you know, I figured if I need it again, I'll look it up, right? So, you know, I probably got 10,000 CDs, which I never listen to anymore just because it's a pain in the neck. You know, I, I have two computers, and, and they don't even have disk drives anymore. I've got a plug-in and an auxiliary disk drive. All right, so if I'm looking for something to uh, steep myself in, uh, immerse myself again, because we're writing about it or talking about it on the show, I'm streaming. Uh, if I'm listening for sheer pleasure... I'm going back to the vinyl. Now, this is where I get into trouble because I had these albums. I knew I had these albums, and then I had them twice because I had them on CD, and then sometimes three times because you get the remastered CD, you know. But the fact is I, I probably have three CD versions of, I don't know, Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and none of them sound as good as they did on vinyl. So, you know, in trying to replace some of the, the, the albums that I had on vinyl, that's like the really A cherry collection, you know. These are the albums I would be marooned on the desert island with. But I have on occasion, until I uh, started a, a list, bought the same album on vinyl twice. Once, I even think three times. But then I just give them as gifts of love to people. <laughs> But I've always been strictly alphabetical, Greg. No genre discernment. Now, sometimes this gives you weird uh, juxtapositions. You know, my Fat Albert record that I've had since uh, age five, which thankfully I never did sell, is next to like Albert Ayler alphabetically. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That just shouldn't happen. But I kind of love that, you know? So it's strictly alphabetical, no genre uh, distinctions. Alphabetical for the CDs, alphabetical for the vinyl. If I could get rid of all these CDs, I would. I would never listen to CD again. This is one of our areas of disagreement. You still like those silly, shiny plastic discs. Oh, they, I think they, I think they, as they moved along, the technology got better and better, and they still sound great. And to my mind, a CD beats a, a streaming, a digital stream, uh, you know, 10 to 1. Uh, and See, vinyl, that, obviously, is the, vinyl obviously is the preferred option, but you can't always yeah. bring your turntable on the road with you, you know? So that's the difference there. But I, I, I do... Uh, seriously enjoy my vinyl and I do play it a lot when I'm at home. So ask me, ask me, ask me Ask me, ask me, ask me Because if it's not love Then it's the bomb, the bomb, the bomb The bomb, the bomb, the bomb The bomb that will bring us together That wraps up another edition of Ask the Critics. If you have questions for us, call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. We also engage when we can on the social medias. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Andrew Gill, and special thanks to the intrepid staff of engineers manning the fort at the socially isolated WBEZ. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. 
So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. My name is Peter. I'm from Oakland, California, originally from Dublin, Ireland. I had the great pleasure of attending a concert in 1978 at the Greek Theatre in Berkeley. It was Bob Marley. Before the show, a man came out with a box onto the stage and started broadcasting joints to the, as far as he could spread them um, before the band came on stage. And it was a just a fantastic concert. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. At the end of the concert, the band did their standard encore and uh, left. Um, the lights came up. We were all supposed to go home. Nobody budged. Nobody. And the promoters realized that nobody was going to leave. So they, Bob Marley came out again and he played another 20 minutes. It was dynamite. Thanks, you guys. This is George calling from Bainbridge Island, Washington. The concert that shaped me was seeing Elliot Smith at a club called Numbers in Houston in October 2000. I remember it as a very quiet, delicate show, which was pretty incongruous and weird in a club that usually played disco. And I remember Elliot Smith seeming so vulnerable. There were huge, long periods of silence during the show, and what was striking is nobody broke it. There were no whoops or shouts. The crowd was completely silent, totally in sync with Elliot Smith. I remember turning around while he was playing the song Between the Bars and looked back into the crowd and saw that, just like me, every person there was silently mouthing the lyrics to the songs. It's the greatest sense of community I've ever experienced at a show. It was one of those rare, transcendent magic moments that can only happen at live shows, and I never forgot it. Thanks for the show, and... Thanks for uh, resurfacing this memory. Take care. People, you've been before that you don't want around anymore. They push and shove and won't bend to your will. I'll keep them still. Hi guys, this is Gordon Granger from beautiful Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I just listened to your uh, great episode on concerts that shaped us, and uh, I wanted to share mine. Uh, I believe it was 2009. I saw Bruce Springsteen at the Palace of Auburn Hills, uh, and this is just outside Detroit. He came out on stage and said, how you feeling tonight, Ohio? And if you understand the... Um, fraught relationship between the states of Ohio and Michigan, this did not go over well, and no one said anything, and there was one guy up in the bleachers who just went, boo, 
And I think it was the first time that Bruce Springsteen had ever been booed. He went and he talked to the rest of the band and realized that he had made the greatest mistake of his life. He got on the mic and said, I have been fearing this moment for my entire career. I have yet to do it. And tonight I did it. I forgot the city that I was in. So you guys get an extra hour and a half tonight. Uh, it was probably one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to. I'll remember the rest of my life. Hey, keep up the good work. Cheers. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.